0: This is episode 362 of the AWS Podcast, released on March 29th, 2020. Podcast confirmed. Welcome to the official AWS Podcast.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. So I'm Lishy here with you. Great to have you back. And I'm joined by the one and only Mr. Corey Quinn. G'day, Corey, welcome to the
0: podcast. Thank you, Simon. As always, it is a pleasure to be invited onto other people's platforms so I can address my snark to a slightly newer audience.
1: (laughs) Spreading the snark. So Corey, amongst many, many other things, hosts the Screaming in the Cloud podcast, uh, which is a very enjoyable podcast to listen to. And I think uh, you're probably quite well known in the general IT community for a penchant for pithy tweets and other comments. But what I think a lot of people don't know is besides that sort of stuff, you also do a whole lot of real useful, interesting, and um, very deep work with a lot of customers across the world. So maybe maybe let's start with the Corey story, as I like to call it. Um, like, yeah, How did you get interested in this domain to the point where you started screaming in clouds? And, and what have you built in the
0: past? Sure. At, at a short, high level, I wound up walking the engineering path for about a decade and change. And I was always a big believer in the idea of a T-shaped engineer, where you should ideally be broad across most of the things that someone in that role should know about, but be super deep into just one or two areas. I started off my career being deep in email systems because I make terrible life choices. And it was pretty clear that there was a rising tide where not every company was going to need a dedicated email administrator. And I could either fight that, off, or I could instead focus on something new and different. So I picked ah monitoring for 20 minutes, which was awful because I'm bad at it and I hate being woken up, and then pivoted into configuration management. I wrote part of SaltStack in the early days. I was a traveling trainer for Puppet. I made fun of Ansible and Chef, and then the whole industry pivoted toward immutable infrastructure, and it was pretty clear that this was no longer the growth area. So cloud seemed to be the next thing right around 2015, 2016. And the expensive business problem that I kept seeing was people not being able to accurately understand or predict their AWS bill. So, all right, we'll see if I can wind up building a consultancy around solving that specific problem. Three years later, I somehow have failed to go out of business every month. <laughs> and here we are.
1: Is, is, that your, is that your bar of success? I'm not out of business.
0: Well, if you look at the sort of things I say here and other places, uh, there's a lot of adjectives you can apply to me, but employable is usually not one. So if this doesn't work, my fallback model is pretty much starving to death.
1: Well, one of the reasons why uh, we wanted to get together, because we, we caught up over a stake uh, last year, in back in the pre-COVID-19 days when you could meet face-to-face, now we're separated by thousands of kilometres and wires, um, but uh, we were talking about some of the different journeys and patterns we see customers going through. One of the, the things that um, I know you enjoy, Corey, is meeting with a whole raft of customers, be they AWS customers or not AWS customers, and just... Um, Having a pretty frank exchange of views about what you see works and what not works. So what I thought might be useful today on behalf of our listeners is for us to tell some of those stories, uh, to talk about some of the, the patterns and uh, and things we see work and don't work. What do you think? you think that'll be fun?
0: Oh, I think that would be a lot of fun, at least for me, as far as whether it'd be fun for other people. Well, that's your problem now,
1: isn't it? That's <laughs> a secondary consideration, is it, uh, Corey? <laughs> well let's exactly. let's maybe start at, a, at an interesting one and this is uh you know cloud versus not cloud and how to decide and and I think this is an interesting one because we're, we're talking about uh, just before we start recording you know, what is what is being right about things and and in all domains and IT is not unusual in this is that the 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 level of rightness changes over time as the conditions around you change so if I think back to sort of the you know 2010 2011 time frame you know we were still in the, what is cloud? Why would I do this? This sounds crazy to, um, to now where it's a, a lot more mainstream, if I can use that term, but how are you seeing customers decide where workloads belong for them?
0: There's an evolution as a part of this, which I think we're seeing almost entirely across the board. Back in 2012, I was building some stuff out and the answer was, well, we can try putting that in the cloud. And the financial companies we were partnering with said, no, you won't. So we didn't. And I instead spent that year building out data centers. Now, of course, in the modern era, those companies that said no are themselves actively present in the cloud. It turns out that when your regulator is in the cloud, your uh, tax authority is in the cloud, your government is in the cloud, your insurance broker, your auditor, all the rest, your arguments about our data being more special than theirs doesn't tend to hold as much water as it once did. But the decision of going to cloud versus not is never purely a technical decision. There's a lot of internal concerns. There's a lot of strategic variables that work into this. And there's a lot of question around what the company culture looks like. You can wave your hand and say we're going to cloud because it makes economic sense. But if you don't have investment or buy in among the decision makers and various stakeholders within the company. it's almost certainly going to fail because people see this as a threat to the small empire that they've been trying to build. They see it as a disruption, uh, but perhaps an unacceptable risk to revenue models that are existing and working. The larger you get, the more risk averse a company becomes in almost every case. In my case, I can get away with saying the sorts of things that I do because the outcomes are all positive. Whereas if I'm now running a publicly traded company, it turns out there's a downside opportunity where suddenly their shareholders wind up losing money. Now I have to start watching what I say. So my antics only work up to a certain point of scale as a quick reference.
1: <laughs> and I think it's interesting when we think about that, you know, you talked about that, that drive to, to cloud is that firstly, the, the reason for moving to the cloud is not to move to the cloud. The reason to move into the cloud is you want more, agility or you need to exit data centers or you want access to more modern technology or your, your actual cost model has changed underneath your business. So you need to change that. Or you're moving into new
0: businesses or new countries. Oh, you this want is to a save a bunch well. of money, yeah. which is yeah. always wrong. It never actually happens. It's, it's one of those ideas where, yeah, you can build a break-even case in five years or so if you're super careful, but invariably it's not in a short enough timeline to matter to most companies. If you're migrating to the cloud with a driver, being cost, you're almost certainly going about it wrong. You're not going to necessarily lose money hand over fist when it comes to a cloud migration, but the story and the reason to do it has got to be around accelerating the pace of innovation. If you're trying to do it just to save money, you're almost certainly doing it wrong.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a multi-dimensional play. And I think that the interesting thing is that the at the at from the very start, we've been talking about the fact that it, it covers a lot of different things. Yeah, you know, it's about having elasticity in your environments about being able to pay for what you use versus just what you think you need a whole raft of things and people tend to focus on cost and we'll get to that a bit later because I think the whole cost thing is a really interesting change in the dynamic of the way we work as IT people but it's all the other benefits that help now that said I have seen some exceptional cases Corey where customers are stuck with some sort of Penalizing uh, renewal rates or some sort of uh, legacy infrastructure that means they're going to pay huge amounts for it, et cetera, kind of over a barrel. And for them, moving out of that particular situation was actually a significant cost benefit. But you're
0: right; it's not the oh, majority of cases, but it's that. certainly
1: it's certainly a nice uh, a nice option if you need it. <laughs>
0: Oh, almost certainly. I tend to view those cases personally as being um, external factors, where there's nothing inherent to the design of their data center or their layout of their infrastructure that is causing them pain, but rather to do with, to be very blunt, predatory vendors who are taking advantage of a certain lack of mobility of a workload in ways that do not benefit customers at all. I have remarkably little patience or tolerance for that.
1: For sure. For sure. Now let's think about, um, you know, we talk about people moving to the cloud and there's often a, a sort of a, a, a choice that people try and make or think about, which is, am I building just my Net new stuff? Am I lifting and shifting? Am I doing a combination? What What have you seen in terms of patterns that work? I've certainly got a list that I, I like to um, to share with people, but I'm interested in what you're seeing in terms of people being successful.
0: One of our, uh, for example, current customers who's a public reference customer and they're fine with having the story told. In fact, they're working on telling it themselves is Scribd. That's S-C-R-I-B-D. They are an ebook, a magazine style content distribution them, site. Yeah. That also, Yeah, yeah. You've also seen their PDF reader embedded for legal documents and things like that all over the internet. They are in a legacy managed data center that is currently in the process of moving to AWS. And the plan is to have that be a full migration. Because we've all seen those stories where people start migrating from one location to another, give up halfway and plant a flag, call it hybrid or multi-cloud, and it's victory. And this is what we intend to do the whole time. It's never what someone intends to do. It turns out that when you start migrating, things get challenging. That's not what's going on here. There's been a very deep analysis into various workloads around what it's going to take to get that to function effectively in AWS there are stories around being able to pick everything up and just drop it as it is into a cloud environment. And that can work. Everyone likes to crap on the idea of lift and shift, but that can be a very viable strategy to pursue as phase one. The problem is is you can't give up after that's done and yeah. declare victory. You've yeah. got to refactor in phase two. Otherwise, you wind up with this transformation story of every workload is transforming as it moves. No one understands how anything works, and you wind up with a whole bunch of issues. Is this the new environment it's in? Is it the refactor? It it turns every outage into a murder mystery even more effectively than microservices does. So finding a story about why this is the way that it is is important. Having a plan is critical, but also understand you're going to deviate from that plan as you go.
1: Yeah, you got to you got to adjust because you you're often often discovering things as you go because you may not have touched certain systems for a long time and uh, when you find those hard coded IP addresses or other
0: interesting dependencies you you need to change your approach. Absolutely, as an added bonus, you can detect these things in some of your tests before you wind up causing outages as you migrate things as by throwing it over the wall and hoping. Now everyone has their own approaches to things, but I've never found that hope is the best strategy for. Successfully completing a migration.
1: It's it's not a high uh, high confidence strategy, but um, we we talked about that that lift and shift. But then what next? And and I think that's a really key point. Is that often lift and shift is important because you know I see a lot of customers who are who have to exit data centers for various reasons. You know, sometimes it's um. I've had customers who, you know, my data center will now be turned into a block of apartments. This is the date it's happening. I have to be out. Um, kind of a non-negotiable situation there. I've had others that have had, you know, um, unfavorable audit findings on their existing facility and they need to get out or they're going to spend, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of refit and it's, it's not going to happen. So lift and shift certainly has a place. But the value is you lift, you shift, and then you optimize. And, and I think this is a, a, a muscle or a discipline that's not well exercised if you're used to operating in a more static environment because you don't have the option to optimise. Like if, you, if you've chosen the wrong size uh, server in a server rack, that's the server you got, enjoy, uh, for the next five years. Whereas if you're lifting and shifting, then it's incumbent to say, well, let me run it for three months, see what the workload looks like. Oh, you know, I'm only running at you know, 20%. I can dial this down a little bit, save a bit of money. That's where the optimization comes in place. So I think that, that next step is really critical.
0: And that's really part of the big question is that we need to be able to figure out as we step through this entire process, what does success look like? What does failure look like? What is the plan for getting from where we are to where we're going? It's not hard to build a workable architecture for almost anything on a whiteboard. But when we get into the world of migration, it's just—it's not just a question of what does success look like. This is a best practice diagram. You folks have a bunch of white papers that explain these. How do you get something vaguely like that and get to a state like that from whatever an existing architecture looks like? And in most cases, you're not allowed to take 18 months of downtime while you refactor everything. Yeah. You have to have a transition plan, and you have to have a series of steps that get closer to what that ideal looks like. And that ideal has to shift in order to accommodate different business requirements.
1: Exactly, and you and you can't be uh, losing out on the the non functional uh, requirements as well as you're going along. One of the one of the shortcuts or the um, the obvious ones that, that I often mention is uh, is like I said the the sort of three month baking period. Uh, to see what works. Now you need to be aware that if you if you have a very seasonal type workload, the three month baking period might not be suitable, but three months is a kind of good number uh, to work with. And then looking at the performance utilization and the both from a memory and CPU perspective of the servers and the network as well is important, but also at the data tiers as well. you know are there are, is there waste going on there? Is there a, a lack of optimization? That's often a good place to um to tweak a little bit and get a big a big uh, kicker of a reward once you've you've baked in. But I think the other thing that's interesting here is that, and this is sort of leading into our next topic, but I'll, I'll sort of precursor it, which is often at the same time as we're doing this lift and shift, taking what we know into this new environment and sort of modifying it a little bit, we're also being challenged by organizations say, well, now you're in the cloud, build cloud-like, cloud-native, um, which is a completely different mindset. And so we kind of have to maintain this split personality of, you know, I can build traditional way on the cloud, or I can build completely you know, API driven composable architectures, dot, dot, dot. It's You've got to have a split personality as you're designing, don't you?
0: You absolutely do. And building things out that are net new, that embrace those new primitives is not necessarily the worst idea in the world. Having that done as a skunkworks project or as a proof of concept can in some cases sort of plant a hill on a flag for people to charge after. But you I not a flag on a hill for people to charge. Well, you could you them. could do all <laughs> that. Whatever works for you. Oh yeah, bury that flag. And at at that point, there's value to having that, I guess, aspirational target. On the other side of the coin, being able to reassure people who are used to the legacy, quote unquote. Yeah, you know, I say legacy. I in, I intend that as it makes money. Some people think that legacy is a slur. Yeah, it's I not a pejorative not term. <laughs> not in the least, but. The idea is you have to wind up with those existing workloads and the existing staff having a path to the future. I mean, I don't know about you, but back when I first learned about AWS, I was incredibly overwhelmed about all the different service offerings that I was never going to master. There were 12 of them. (laughs) Now, there are a couple hundred of them, and that problem hasn't gotten smaller. But... People pick one of the services that they're uh, that they're going to learn first, like EC2. Well, surprise, you've got to learn 12 ancillary services in order to use that effectively, VPCs, IAM, a handful of others. And then people finally wind up getting to a point of understanding that. I don't want to learn a second service because the first one was awful. Well, not every service has that same heavy lift requirement for getting up to speed with it. In fact, almost none of them do it just comes down to being able to understand the interplay of various services and also understand that every service is for someone but no service is for everyone yeah
1: yeah i think i think that's very true and i think if if you think about the sort of architectural philosophies that have held true it's always what's the absolute least amount of work i can do and the least componentry i can use to make something happen and there's a there's a real efficiency play and one of the things i like about the cloud in general is it rewards that mentality where you know, if you just need one thing, you don't have to get a whole bunch of other stuff. You know, if you just need a queue, um, well, here's my three lines of code to get myself a queue to make my um, architecture easier. And I often talk about, um, I think it was Michelangelo who said, that, you know, when they asked him, how did you make, you know, the David and all these amazing statues? And he said, it was already there. I just chipped away the bits that didn't need to be there. And that's kind of what good architecture looks like, is the bits that don't need to be there are more important than the bits that are there.
0: Oh, absolutely. And one thing that I like to do as well, uh, you mentioned the Screaming in the Cloud podcast, but I do have a second, the AWS Morning Brief. I recently launched a new day on Fridays, which is called Whiteboard Confessional, the terrifying things that made it into production anyway, for a variety of reasons, not all of them good. And I've started telling more stories about how I've broken things on Mm -hmm. that particular podcast, Mm -hmm. because the reason that I believe in doing things a certain way is very often because I've tried other ways and it ended horribly, but no one likes to talk about their failures in the same way. Yeah. Well, let's fix that. I'm very good at breaking things horribly. So let's embrace that and see what comes out of it.
1: That's a, that's a, that's a great idea. And that relates to really the, the concept of, of staff and training and skills, et cetera, is, you know what do you see customers doing? Are they, are they taking their existing staff and training them up or are they bringing in new staff or partners to help them on their journey? What's What are some of the patterns you're seeing work?
0: All of the above and more. You generally are going to need to retool some of your existing staff's skill set, but you can partially do that by bringing folks in from the outside. But you have entire existing staffs that are very well acquainted with what your environment is doing, how your company works. Well, congratulations, we're moving to something else. Time for you all to get out of here is not a viable strategy the aws training and certification group does amazing work uh third parties such as a cloud guru tend to do amazing work as well in similar spaces it's an emerging problem that i find of deep personal interest how do we get from where people are today to being able to address cloud native style environments in the coming years. There's sure there's gonna be a 30 year long tail for a lot of the data center style workloads, but those generally speaking are not going to be the types of skills that are going to help new grads today throughout the entire course of their career. So there has to be a way of teaching these skills to folks who are both new grads who are existing learners coming with a broad base of established skill sets and there's no straight path for any one person that's going to work for everyone. We all have to find our own way. The hard part is how you wind up finding different courses that that apply to more than just one or two folks. Yeah, and I think it's interesting
1: because the, the the sort of, the sort of world around us constantly changes, and the 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 technology cycles are much shorter than ever before. So you know, in the past, where you'd go off, you'd do a, a certification or a set of training, it would last you a good five to ten years. Uh, it's not going to cut it anymore across any of the domains. And so there's a, a real shift to those micro certifications, online certifications, and that, that lifelong constant learning. And I think it's really important that, that uh, as IT professionals we really embrace that because it's it's a far more satisfying career, to be honest. I mean, I, I started off in mainframes and Kix, COBOL, DB2, et cetera, and I could have probably made my entire career in that. In fact, it's my retirement plan in a few years but um uh you know i i get such joy today for example coding using using lambda using athena using all these serverless technologies that you know rendered many of my architectures from 10 15 years ago that I deployed in customers completely obsolete like <laughs> just you know if I did it today I wouldn't do it that way uh to your point earlier. oh
0: absolutely one of the most hilarious things I've seen so far in recent memory has been the AWS official reference architecture for WordPress it someone was online talking about how they would do this ridiculous overwrought uh, architecture as a joke for WordPress and what they described was not too far removed from the actual official way of doing this it was incredibly scaled out incredibly Uh, expensive to run at small scale minimum for just the bare print bare primitives of everything was i think 700 bucks a month so yeah if you're running something at large scale as a wordpress farm this begins to make sense but those architectural patterns do not map for someone trying to get a toy blog up over the weekend understanding the scale and the scope of what you're building and how is incredibly important i agree with you on the serverless piece i think that the things i am building today look nothing like the things i was building five years ago The counterpoint is that there's a lot of hype in the space right now. It is not yet a fit for an awful lot of workloads, but people who are in love with the technology don't want to hear that and start either becoming defensive or overlooking very real constraints around that. I love the technology. I love the direction, but I want to see it continue to evolve before treating it like it's a panacea that applies to every problem.
1: Mm. Well, the, the, The reality is there are no panaceas. You know that that's the whole point. That's why we continuously change things and improve things and offer new capabilities and services. And there are new trends and approaches in, in IT because we're trying to fix the new set of problems. And the new set of set of problems that we fix then has another set of problems. You know that we're never done. It's never perfect. And I think to have that sort of dogmatic mindset is is always dangerous. You got to be you got to be pragmatic and use the right thing. There are times where serverless is fantastic, fits the bill, go for it. There are times where hey, let's go. Uh, you know bare metal instances and do it all ourselves from the, from the ground up because that's what makes sense as well. It just, it, it's a, it's a real, it depends. And I think this ties into the whole, the whole concept of just how many services we have on AWS, for example, you know, as you know, very well, Corey, they come purely from customer feedback saying it would be really great if you did this. So I didn't have to do that anymore. And what that means is we end up with 170 plus different services and, You're right. They're not there to say, well, you must use all 170 services or you're not using AWS. It's like, no, you use the bits that make sense for you.
0: They're not Pokemon. You don't need to catch
1: them all. (laughs) Exactly. And there may be complete domains that you never get into. You know, we have a whole lot of services in the gaming sector that are are really useful for those people who use game tech services. Um, But other organizations will never touch those. And that's okay. Similarly, you know, we're not saying you've got to use serverless or you've got to use EC2. You can use whatever you want. Um, you may use a blended approach. We often see that as well. It's just it's using the the right thing at the right time. And I think the big the big picture advantage here, and you touched on it earlier on, is that that agility. But more than agility, I think agility is an overused word. I like to talk about the reduction of time to value. So the the time it takes between I've got an idea or initiative I want to test versus it's in the hands of my customers and I can see if it's worthwhile is much shorter when you operate in the cloud versus traditional
0: approaches. And that's the business value. I think you're probably right on that. It, it comes down to meeting customers where they are, to a point. And we're seeing this in the last year, for example, with the uh, general availability of outposts. Historically, AWS's stance was more or less that if you're in data centers, cool, we can handle direct connect, Being was their story, as well as, well, here's the snowball edge or even the snowmobile if you want an entire truck full of data to move back and forth. But this is really one of the first times that, all right, they're going to ship out, racks full of hardware to run some AWS services locally in your data center. It really is embracing a new approach that I don't think we'd seen historically in quite the same light. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because that was one that came again from
1: from customer feedback, Customers saying, look, we really want to move to the cloud. However, the the latency requirements for this particular workload versus where I'm located that, you know, you kind of change the laws of physics, Jim. This is what it is. And so then we had to tackle it and say, well okay, well, how do we provide the the AW's experience in a customer's data center without the complexity of them having to buy hardware or work with third parties or worry about maintenance, et cetera and that's you know that's where this I think outposts will be a very interesting evolution as that moves along its life cycle in terms of how that that provides services to customers. but I think um, it's useful in a very specific use case and and again back to these these services we have. Understand the use case is the starting point, isn't it? It's not the technology. It's what are you trying to solve for?
0: Exactly. And sometimes engineers tend to skip directly past those business questions and into the world of implementation. I'm as guilty of that as anyone. It's it takes a constant effort on my part to back up and remind myself that that's not true. So, question: I, You have to understand the why behind the what.
1: Exactly. So, related to that, uh, what are you seeing? Skunk works or formal CIO initiative? What's the where's the balance these days?
0: Uh, Good question. I think it comes down to customer profile. Uh, For a lot of the early adopters of cloud when, okay, it's time for us to pick a cloud provider to do some stuff. Let's see. Well, it turns out that we have 87 different AWS accounts scattered throughout the organization that everyone has been doing on a corporate credit card. Huh? Well, we already apparently have a skill set here we didn't realize is part of what's driving that from the ground up perspective. But when you're being more strategic around doing, for example, a corporate IT wholesale migration initiative, that tends to come from the top-down. And in many cases, there are very often reasons why people will decide to go for A-Cloud or V-Cloud or AWS specifically. And those discussions don't always look the same, but we do tend to see some common patterns emerging. And that usually looks an awful lot these days for the big E enterprises and Starship uh, tends to be top-down driven these days.
1: And I think it's it's interesting how that has shifted because you're right. like years ago it was it was almost exclusively that that sort of skunk works approach people trying to fill a need, which is I think the best place for innovation to come from. Where I see customers exactly. work really well is where they've got really strong senior level executive sponsorship and clear direction to say this is the direction we're going in, but also those folks that are actually doing the work are on board as well, you know they' They're passionate, they're enabled, they're enthusiastic, they want to do it. They're, sort of, they're almost like, oh, thank goodness, <laughs> about time we did this sort of thing. When you bring those two things together, it's, it's pretty hard to be unsuccessful if you've got the, the sponsorship and the capability.
0: I think that expertise in cloud, period, is at no longer optional when you're looking at something like this. Now, it's easy to look at companies and view them as static entities, but that's very much not the case. A lot of the executive sponsorship comes from executives matriculating in who have done similar migrations or large-scale infrastructures yeah. into the cloud in previous roles.
1: Yeah, that's that's if you you're spot on. In fact, that's that's if anything more common now that there is that sort of base of people who who are public about, hey, I did this, I migrated this, I, uh, I um, upgraded this uh, particular company to be this capability or this speed of velocity of operating. And, yeah, others will look at that and say, yeah, we want
0: some of that come across. Come and do it for us. And we've seen a narrative change too. It used to be that a lot of companies would view that talking about the fact that they're using cloud services was considered a risk factor. Now it's considered a competitive advantage. People have gone from not wanting to be reference customers to, ooh, can we be a reference customer? It's a very different change in conversational tone. It's a different
1: dynamic. Now let's talk a different topic here. Now this is – this is something I know is near and dear to your heart. And like you say, you've made a whole business on it, which is uh, understanding bills and how much things cost in the cloud, et cetera. But I want to kind of step back a little bit. I want to talk about what I was seeing uh, from a developer standpoint early on in the adoption of cloud, which was a, a it was really the first time developers had actually been allowed to see what IT services cost. Because in a traditional procurement mode, the the developers would be required to provide a build list of you know here's the server, storage, networking, etc. You need to make this project work. Here's the licenses you need. That would go up to a project manager, which go up to a project sponsor, which would go into finance, which would be funded at a big level, would come out of a bigger IT spend that would be deployed through the uh, the IT infrastructure function, and eventually it would get back to the um, the developer, and it would be just a, a black box really. They'd never see how much it cost. And right. Why would you bother teaching a front-end developer how much it costs to build a data center? Correct. You don't need. You don't need to know that. Now, what's interesting is that if you know how much things cost, you can make rational and differentiated decisions about how you might build something, because you can add the concept of how much things cost as a trade-off, along with performance, availability, feature, function, etc. And I've sort of seen two two paths go on here. I've seen people sort of, you know, react with horror when they found out what things cost. And and one of my favorite meetings, I'll, I'll tell a quick story. One of my favorite meetings was when I was I was briefing someone. This was, would have been about 20, 2012, 2013. I was briefing an enterprise customer about AWS and here's what you can do. And we had some developers in the room, but we also had their finance department in the room. And, you know, the developers said, oh, how much does storage cost? And I quoted the number at the time. I forget what the number was for EBS, et cetera. And they sort of recalled in horror and said that much for a terabyte. And the finance guy leaned over and said, you have no idea how much it costs per terabyte today for us to spend on this. I would gladly pay this amount. And it was really illustrative to me to see that disconnect of, you know, things are expensive if, if in your mind they're free um, versus if you're paying the bill, you start to understand what it what it actually costs. And I think those developers who have really internalized this concept of I can build things efficiently from a financial perspective as well as a performance perspective, they're kind of the rock stars of the future because they can have a business conversation with those sponsors.
0: You're absolutely right, and what you're you're alluding to in some ways is the, I guess, the strategic blind spot of an awful lot of engineers. I consider myself in this same boat. I learned how a lot of these things work, uh, puttering around in my spare time. Yeah, uh, When I was working a job that I didn't love, that was no not particularly tied to tech. So money was always tight. So I tended to do, default to assuming my time was free, but paying anything for our, heaven forbid, hardware was absolutely not. Mm. And whereas when you're talking about a corporate context, people's time is the most expensive thing that you're going to see. In almost every case, the person working on the cloud environment costs more than the cloud environment that they're spinning <laughs> up does. So getting people across that hump is important. Otherwise, you're going to see developers spending copious amounts of time trying to knock $200 a month off of their bill when they cost an order of magnitude or two more than that. It's yeah, This does yeah. not advance the company in any meaningful way. So setting ground rules, setting expectations around how budgeting works is almost a requirement for making sure that folks are focusing on the right part of the story. And that's an evolutionary process for most companies.
1: It is, and it's it's a real education process. And I, I want to be clear. I think you know the, the the challenge. I was in this boat myself. I was a developer. I had no idea what things cost. It's it's not that it's not a maliciousness or a negligence. It's just that we haven't allowed developers to see the cost. And and that was one of the nice things about cloud in general is it's you know, you want to know how much it cost? You look on the web, but there it is. I mean you, you probably remember like oh, I yeah. do negotiating price lists and here's the list price, but this is your price and it's a different price. And if it's the end of the quarter it's that price and it can change. Magic SKUs that
0: don't oh, really exist, but they can show it to purchasing and get a <laughs> discount. Yeah. And by default In a typical AWS account, I am and federated users are not allowed to see what the bill is. In one of my early cloud jobs, I asked, could I see what the AWS bill is? And the answer was a very incensed, why do you think that's any of your business slash you need to know? Okay, Mm. fair enough. I think it's a a perfect example of a wrong answer. And we're seeing. Oh, yeah. The idea of someone is empowered to spin up a $50,000 cluster, but not know that they just did that is a terrible plan.
1: Well, people typically make good decisions when they're presented with good data, <laughs> and so if you, you have if to you make them, it
0: easy for people to do the right thing, yeah,
1: if you give them the trade-offs and let them know, then then they'll then they'll make those decisions. This ties into a whole concept that's been around for a while called economic architecture, which is basically trying to map the the IT cost to the transaction value of the business function you're performing. And if you think about most organisations, they actually don't know how much a business transaction with one of their customers or a business function actually costs for the transaction. So they can't make a judgment. Is it worth us doing this transaction the way we're doing it or not? Are we making money? Are we not making money? Like it's, it's, it's very difficult at that very uh, granular level to figure it out. So it gets rolled up high, but I think there's a real opportunity to, to go deep into that and be able to say, I can tell you, you know, to the cent what your transaction cost is
0: and what part of the API it's costing you the most money on, it just gets into something a lot of SaaS companies care about. They're tying back of infrastructure costs to their monthly active user or daily active user metrics. The idea of tying infrastructure and other costs back to a business metric that helps them inform their planning, their strategic decision-making is incredibly valuable and of extreme interest to an awful lot of shops. That is actually what I do, but, tie, but it shortens to, I fix the bill, which everyone tends to take their own lesson away from is always challenging. People mm, don't want to sit mm. down for 20 minutes and hear the story of what drives actual corporate decision-making. Marketing, yeah, still yeah, a challenge. Yeah, yeah,
1: very true, very true. So let's talk about another another choice, uh, abstraction versus building close to the cloud platform. This is, this is one that a lot of people have wrestled with from, from day dot. What are you seeing working out there?
0: I think that it's not a binary decision. I think that focusing on building things out where you at least have a strategic plan to roll something onto another provider if necessary is often valuable. I think that building everything so with the idea on day one that you can deploy it to on-premise or to AWS or to one of AWS's competitors, I think that that is an early optimization that you are paying for with feature velocity. I think that the big things to pay attention to are where your data is going to live because data gravity is very real, but as far as deciding how you're going to orchestrate containers or how you're going to structure working with code, great, that becomes a very different story. On my own podcast, I had Mitchell Hashimoto, uh, one of the founders of HashiCorp, come on and talk about how with Terraform, the plan was never to be able to build something in a provider agnostic way. Because you're going to be rewriting an awful lot of stuff in the course of a migration, but rather for workflow portability. You're still used to interfacing with the same level of uh, system, regardless of where the thing ultimately gets deployed. But no one sensible is believing that the idea of a workload that can seamlessly shift to all kinds of different providers is worth pursuing for most cases.
1: Yeah, I think that that you're right, that ability to, to move the workflow over time is the is the nuance there that maybe gets lost in some of the uh, the, the conversation. It's very, very important. Let's talk, Corey, about, you know, you get to meet a lot of customers, you get to see them and you get to see the good and the bad, and we'll talk about the good shortly. But what would you say is the, uh, let, let me use a clickbait phrase, I hate clickbait, but let me use one. You know, what's the one biggest mistake you see companies make?
0: <laughs> uh, I would say that that has to be that seeing a big bill and automatically equating that that's bad when finance says that, well, we were up 20% in our hosting costs last month, obviously something is wrong. That tends to be what engineering hears, even if it's not explicitly stated. It's a data point, but you don't have enough data to understand whether that's good or bad. Maybe a bunch of reservations renewed. Maybe it was the holiday season and suddenly you had a whole bunch of additional traffic. Maybe it was a misconfiguration and something needs to be scaled back. But in the absence of better insight, that's just a data point worth investigating. And by the way, most finance company, most finance departments of companies are not saying that that's a bad thing. They want to know, is this an aberration? Is this the new normal? What does this mean for our forecasts? That is the question. But mm. what engineers hear is that, oh, you're spending too much on the cloud, yeah. which is usually not the case.
1: And you're right. I mean, it, and, and particularly because of the the elasticity of the cloud, you know, the, the reason for the increased bill could very well be, we got a whole bunch of extra orders and way more traffic and we made a lot more revenue as a company this quarter. It's awesome. <laughs> you know, that's, that's why the oh, bill's absolutely. going up. Yeah. The bill's going no up because the revenue's going up. <laughs> to,
0: oh, and no one sets out to build something for the least possible amount of money and generally succeeds. The there's always an opportunity to optimize further, but at some point, the juice really isn't worth the squeeze for most environments, so you've got to instead focus on what is the most valuable strategic thing that we can do. Uh, for example, one of our reference customers, Honeycomb, talked about how we came in and in a short period of time, blew 10% off of their entire operating budget. That was worth pursuing, but sitting there optimizing every developer environment to save another 20 bucks a month was very much not because you're not going to cost cut your way to your next financial milestone no who you are. So at some point, cool. The money has been saved. Let's move on and focus on things that get us further faster, rather than focusing on ways to continue to pinch pennies. because at some point, people are embezzling more in office supplies than they're going to be <laughs> able to save you with a with a focused effort. Find the low-hanging fruit, do the relatively easy things, let cost inform your future architecture, and then move on. There's always savings, but at some point it ceases being worth pursuing them
1: it's a that diminishing returns and the, the the other trend i see in that space is you know there's often opportunities because of the new architecture models available to us to do things radically cheaper than before and and i'm talking you know take away a zero take away two zeros from from your traditional cost for a particular service or capability Oh, yeah. And
0: that that's where you want to go. <laughs> they're the things to take advantage I have a gigabyte of data that I want to keep secure and highly available. I have two options. I can wind up having, a, for each gigabyte of data, I can store it uh, on EBS volumes in three different availability zones. That's $0.30 cents a month, assuming a GP2 uh, standard uh, EBS volume. So that's 30 cents right there, plus another two cents every time I transfer it between availability zones, or that entire thing can wind up living in S3 with a phenomenal availability rate, no cross AZ data transfer, and it costs 2.3 cents a month. That is a massive cost difference if the application consuming that is capable of consuming S3. Spot on. Spot on. So let's... So let, architectural opportunities are there. there but are, understanding where those live is always challenging and not every workload can be adapted for this. So no, maybe true. it works, maybe it doesn't.
1: Yeah, sometimes it's a trade-off. And that's why I think there's that, that you know, the, the net new versus the existing estate comes into it as well. There's there's always optimizations you can do to the existing estate, but sometimes it makes sense to focus on the net new. You know, I've seen projects where they initially thought, oh, it's, this is going to cost us a million dollars to do because it's going to be multilingual and all this other fancy stuff, etc. And then when they actually build it the right way, it's like, oh, you know, you cost a tenth of that. <laughs> awesome. You know that, that goes back into the into the budget, and we can use that for the other stuff. So th- there's always places to find opportunity.
0: Oh, I would agree. I think that there's a. It, it's very easy to take a look at everything from a pure numbers perspective and look at a bill in isolation and say, "Oh, that's too high. That thing is clearly a giant misconfiguration." I don't think that that makes sense. I think an awful lot of this becomes extraordinarily focused around what the actual business constraints are, what the use cases are. I'm very down on the idea that most of this can be done effectively via API. It has to come attended with business conversations and mm-hmm. folks who understand the context of why things are the way that they are.
1: So Corey, you've gone on your own sort of personal journey of discovery to come to that mental model of that way of thinking. Let's let's get a little bit meta. If, if we've got listeners listening now going, that's how I want to be thinking about things. What are some of the tangible things they can do to help educate themselves to be able to have a, a, a good enough frame of reference to have some of those those business level conversations, those financial conversations, to understand some of the nuances of finance that, that feed into some of your own decision making?
0: Uh, step one, have conversations with people in finance. They use different phrasing, but they're still human beings the last time we checked. Uh, secondly, uh, an exercise I like to take people through is called what I like to call double or nothing. If, let's say I come in to look at your AWS account, I am the worst consultant in the world and I double everything that you're spending. Does that have a material impact on the business? Okay, follow up question. I'm the best consultant in the world and now your bill drops to zero. Does that in turn wind up materially moving the needle on your business? In many cases, the answer to that is no, which means that pursuing a financial approach to altering the entirety of the AWS environment may not be a strategic priority. If the answer to that is different then maybe it is, but it does definitely require a nuanced understanding of what the business actually cares about. And most folks who see these bills from a good citizen perspective and want to focus on saving the company money do not have access to the strategic requirements that are shaping why a company does a certain, does any particular thing.
1: I think it's a really, really good insight. And it ties back to a thing we seem to keep revisiting on this podcast, which is that IT and business is made of people.
0: (laughs) Oh yes. And you'd be surprised how many people are convinced that, Every people, but people in other departments are worlds apart, and they can never have the same language discussion. I mean, I feel like half of what I do is providing marriage counseling for finance and engineering.
1: <laughs> it's very true. It's a, look, it's just it's just language, and it's it's yeah, everyone's got good intent, and they're trying to get the right things done. And you're right, it's just coming together. It's it's always easy, I think, when you don't talk to someone to think they're making boneheaded decisions or coming from some point of maliciousness, where it's just a, a lack of communication.
0: Why can't we all just get along? Exactly. No one is showing up in the morning hoping to do a terrible job today unless you work at one of a couple of startups that I won't name on this podcast for (laughs) your editor's convenience. So it's absolutely not the sort of story where people are showing up and doing these things maliciously. They just don't often have the tools to have these conversations in the right context.
1: So Corey, we've covered a lot of ground today. Where do people hear more from you? Because I know you're a shy and retiring flower who doesn't like to be heard or seen. But if people
0: do want to uh, get a lot more of The Corey Show, where do they go? There's always Twitter, where insulting various multinational companies has become something of a pastime of mine. The There's, of course, the Last Week in AWS newsletter and attendant podcasts, all of which can be found at lastweekinaws.com. And there's, of course, accosting me when you see me haunting various cities near you.
1: Now, I, I should warn people that, you know, you might think, oh, I'll accost Corey. Well, he, he does reserve the right to accost back.
0: <laughs> it always amuses me when I visit an AWS office where I'm I'm looking around at people and I'm thinking, oh, I hope the, they don't recognize me and walked over and punched me in the face. And it turns out that a lot of the Amazon employees are looking at me, going, oh, there's Corey. I hope he doesn't come over and punch me in the face. So there's very much a, uh, <laughs> but not everyone is always on the same page with these things.
1: I, th- I think the reality is, is that people like to have uh, passionate and informed conversations. And if you can bring data, all the better. And uh, we're all on the same side trying to make things better, which is a good thing.
0: So we can help. Exactly. Simon, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak to you about a little bit more about what I do and make fun of terrible anti-patterns.
1: <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure. I'll definitely have you back and I'll have to uh, come across to the Screaming in the Cloud podcast as well and do some Screaming of my own.
0: This is the beautiful part is to invite people to do these things in a scenario where they cannot possibly say no. So I look forward to having you on the podcast.
1: Done deal. Thanks very much, Corey. And thanks everyone for listening. We do love to get your feedback. AWS podcast at amazon.com is the place for that. And until next time, keep on building.